Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. It is page 952 in your pew Bibles. It is the Apostle Paul writing to the church that is at Corinth, his first letter. Paul begins the second chapter saying, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This will be part three of a series through Holy Week and beyond where we celebrated Palm Sunday. Last week we we're in Resurrection Sunday, and this week we're going to talk about what the church did shortly thereafter. The church recognized that the center of what we do, the center of the gospel, Paul said, I could have wowed you with impressive words. I could have done a lot of things. I just decided when I came among you, I would know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Father, it is Your Word. It is God-breathed. It is divinely inspired. It is forever settled in heaven, and we thank You for it. It is anointed. Now anoint, we pray, our hearts and minds to receive it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We make a big deal, whether we realize it or not, in church, we make a big deal about the Apostle Paul, the man, and his teachings. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, or at least the majority of it. We should not neglect other writers of the New Testament. I don't want to neglect Peter's writings. They are tremendous. I don't want to neglect Jude or the Gospels. Uh, But the writings of Paul dominate the landscape of the New Testament and the landscape of Christianity. There have been millions and millions, countless millions of words penned in books and in commentaries and in sermons about what the Apostle Paul wrote. Paul's writings, if you look in the New Testament, the New Testament itself is not very big. I mean, you could sit down and read it in a few hours. Uh, It's not just the amount of the body of work there is, is not large compared to so many other writings. I've often been amazed that the Bible doesn't fill an entire bookshelf. Uh, All in all, the Bible is not that large of a book, and especially the New Testament. Uh, But for all of what Paul wrote, there have been a lot of a lot of ink has been spilled writing about what Paul wrote, arguing about what Paul wrote. You have different camps today. Uh, You have different denominations, and the denominations uh, exist because they interpret what the Bible says a little differently than this camp over here. And a lot of that does come from the Apostle Paul. The the Apostle Paul was not always an apostle. He was an ordinary man. We're not elevating him. We're not worshiping him. He was a fallible, ordinary man. And what he did is he often gave his testimony about his conversion experience. The point of Paul's testimony was never about Paul. It was about providing evidence that this man named Jesus who died just a few years ago really was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. He really did come back from the dead and he really is the Messiah. And Paul spent the rest of his life arguing that point, convincing people, swaying people to believe that. 
It was a way, his testimony was a way for people to authenticate the words of the Messiah. So to understand a little bit about Paul, uh, and just kind of set this up for what we, what we want to understand about Paul, is we need to understand how Paul was raised and how Paul was taught and how maybe he would have thought. So if you go back 2,000 years ago, there was a man in Israel at the time of Christ. His name was Hillel. Hillel was 100 years old at least when Jesus was born. He was a very old man then, and he lived a few more years after that. He died sometime in the childhood or teen years of Jesus, probably pushing 120 years old, which then was a very, just like today, that was a very long time to live, very unusual. Uh, But the history records that he lived well over 100 years. There was another man named Shammai, and Shammai was born 50 years before Jesus, and he was alive when Jesus was born. And he would live several more years and die not long before the crucifixion of Christ. So these men are contemporaries in Israel of Jesus. As Jesus is a baby and an infant and a child and a teen, these men are well-aged and very influential in their world. They would establish two competing schools of thought in Judaism that dominated the time of Jesus and still do today. If you were a Jew, if you converted to Judaism today, your life the teachings of what they taught you would be influenced by these two men that lived 2,000 years ago. But there were deep lines of division between these two Jewish schools of thought. One of these, and one of the primary points of disagreement, was how the Jews should live under an alien regime, the Roman Empire. The Jews are living under an occupying force. How then should they live under Roman rule? The man Hillel was a moderate We hear today in in politics about moderates and extremists, and that's nothing new. They've always existed, and Hillel was a moderate. And he believed that Jews should live in peace, if possible, under Roman rule. Don't cause too much trouble. Try to get along with them. Try to uh, agree when possible. We don't want to fight these people. We want to live under peace. We're, We're moderates. He passed this idea down to his grandson, who we do find in the Bible. His grandson was Gamaliel, and we find him in the book of Acts. You know Gamaliel from Acts. He's the man that Paul refers to. Paul says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the grandson of this very influential Jewish leader. He said, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you all are to this day. I persecuted the way, the way is capital letters, it's talking about Christianity. Paul says, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering people to prison, both men and women. Now, if you caught what I just said, you understand this doesn't make sense. Because Paul is educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who's a moderate, that says, we should try to live in peace with these people. But what happened, what is inferred here, is that somewhere Paul was radicalized by the extremist Shammai. His teachings, which were in total opposition to what Paul was taught, and we know this, there's a key word here, zealous. Paul says, I was zealous. This was the kind of language. They were zealots. They were extremists. They wanted to fight the Roman Empire. They wanted to persecute and kill the Christians. His actions and his words tell us he had been radicalized and influenced by the teachings of those who followed Shammai. 
These were the more radical teachings that encouraged violence if necessary, violence against the Roman opposition, which would directly lead to upheavals in the 50s and the 60s and eventually would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. And violence against anybody who threatened their faith in God. We are Jews. We know our God. We are, not, we are tired of being batted around like a ping pong ball. We are going to start fighting. We are tired of laying down for these people. Not what Paul would have learned in his childhood, but what Paul picked up and changed his mind about and became radicalized. That if these Christians try to come against us and destroy our way of life, we will kill them. It's the only way they knew to stop the oppression that had been happening for centuries. The Old Testament, the Babylonians and the Assyrians came in and took over their country. Numerous assaults between the Old and the New Testament by various factions. And then when we open up the New Testament in Matthew, we find the Romans ruling Palestine. Jews cannot get a break. They just keep getting batted around and, and they said, we're, we're tired of it. We're tired of our faith being threatened. And now after all this, these dreaded people who followed this man to be, claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus, if you're looking at it through their eyes, He's a rebel. He's a troublemaker. He's a fake. He's a fraud. The man who, if all these things were true, he deserved to die because he committed the crime of blasphemy against their holy God by claiming to be God's son. And the only way to deal with such an offensive act is to kill him along with all the other common criminals, crucify him between two common thieves, strip him naked in front of his friends and family and even his own mother and nail him to a cross and let him suffer and suffocate to death while we play games and gamble for his clothing at the foot of his cross. That's how we'll handle this. And if you're Paul, what you do is persecute and kill people who follow such a man because if this man and his teachings were a threat to Judaism, then a group of people who followed such teachings must be even a greater threat because there's more of them. So, death to all the Christians. That's the man who believed that, who wrote these words. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, and where is the scribe? Where is the, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, and well, we have witnessed this to be true in our lives in the church. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no person might glory 
in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then he comes to the words we read when we opened. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Said the man who persecuted and drug Christians off to their death at one time in his life. Yes, I sat at the feet of a leader of a Jewish movement. Yes, I am well educated. Yes, I could astound you with my knowledge of what I know. But I decided to know nothing among you, Paul said, except Christ and Him crucified. And when I observe Christianity in America, and I had a front row seat to it this past week, situations that you may or may not read about in, in sources that you follow, but just two major, major breaking scandals in mega churches that just broke these past couple weeks in the United States, uh, just being drugged through the mud. And, and some of them, I mean, the, I don't think anybody thinks the accusations are not true. It's just things that are coming to light after years. Uh, when I see Christianity in America, I can only conclude that the powers of darkness have blinded the minds of both sheep and shepherd. When I see the, the nonsense and the foolishness in the pulpit and the entertainment-driven religious culture and platforms that look like nightclubs and pulpits that sound like Comedy Central, I can only conclude that the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Calvary are not central in the minds and lives and preaching overall in the religion that America has today had this conversation with a pastor on the phone this week and I shared with him uh, what I had experienced, what I had witnessed firsthand among a group of preachers. It just, I've never seen anything like it. It was, to me, it was blasphemous. It was just, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I, I sent about a five word text in the text stream and uh, the group text and nobody else said anything. And, I'll get to have lunch with these gentlemen this week and see how that goes. Um, but when I witness that, I say, is there anything sacred left? Is there anything that is, you know, when, when, we, when we thumb our, uh, our hands through the, the Scriptures, do we realize that we're handling sacred texts? We must be Christ-centered. We must be cross-centered. Dottie Rambo was a well-known songwriter. I think some songwriters are inspired. She had to be anointed to write some of the songs that she wrote. And one of the songs that she wrote is, Don't let me walk too far from Calvary, and don't spare the agony of Gethsemane. And I might soon forget the death that you died for me, and that's why I pray, Lord, don't let me stray too far from Calvary. We have talent today, we have tools, we have methods, we have all these things. But there is a danger in all of these things to become self-reliant. We still need the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. That's all gospel means is good news. When we read gospel, it's just the good news. Jesus talked about the gospel of the kingdom. It's the, the good news of the kingdom. And it refers to the good news that Jesus came to establish His kingdom on this earth and then to give 
his life as a sacrifice for the sins of every man and every woman who will come to him. And for someone who doesn't know anything about biblical Christianity, they may question how could Christ, like all the descriptions that I've talked about on the cross, how could that be good news? It's because without the crucifixion, you and I have no hope. We were all born sinners. I don't care where you were born, born in poverty or privilege or anywhere in between. Our DNA from our parents gives us our skin color and our hair color, our eye color, our height, a thousand other things that make us different in a million ways. But the one thing that we all share in common is that we're all sinners. And that's a problem because God hates sin. And what we have this saying in, in Christianity, well, God, God hates sin, but, but He loves the sinner. And then I look at the writings of, of some of the Old Testament and the psalmist said, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You hate them. Psalm 11, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. There, there's no separation from sin and the sinner. There's no sin without the sinner. There's just like there's no crime without the criminal. The judge doesn't go in the court and say, Son... I hate what you did, but I hate, hate your crime, but as a criminal, you don't have to pay the penalty. That wasn't really you. No, the, the criminal has to pay the penalty of the crime, just as the sinner must pay the penalty of the sin. This is central to what Paul's writing in Romans. When Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? That scripture is so often misunderstood. It's like, God's for you like he's got this rally flag, he's behind you. Like, hey, God's in your corner. It's not... God is for you through your faith and because of the work that He did on Calvary through Christ. That's, that's why God can be for you is because of justification. Because now I don't have to pay for my sins because Christ paid for them. When Paul says in Romans 5, therefore having peace with God, we didn't always have peace with God. I am not at peace with God when I am a sinner. It is what He did for us. It is Christ being the substitute that allows Him to pay the penalty so I can have peace with God. That is the heart of the gospel because sin doesn't suffer eternal punishment. The sinner does. The wrath of God is real. And then there's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He loved everybody. Now, our Western mindsets make all of life very binary, either or. God either has to love us or hate us. He can't be in between. Well, that's Western, dualistic, modern thinking. The Bible is not a Western book and the mind of God did not originate in 21st century America. We hold all of these biblical truths in tension. They are all true, even if they are in tension. So yes, God's wrath and judgment are against the sinner and God will punish sin in the sinner and every sin ever committed will be dealt with by God who is holy and just, who must deal with sin. It offends His infinite holiness. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. There's a word that we don't use often, the word propitiation. You don't use that in your comment. I guarantee you nobody this week used that in, in your conversation with somebody. Probably didn't happen. It's, uh, but it means to absorb wrath. It's what people did. To, you know, it's, it's not raining. Our crops are dying. There's a drought. The gods in the sky must be against us. They must be angry with us to withhold the rain. So we will go offer this sacrificial offering, a propitiation to appease the wrath of the God. That's what it meant in the context of Paul's world. 
And Paul grabs that idea from paganism, from an idolatrous religion and says, this is what happened on the cross. God's Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, absorbed. He was the propitious sacrifice for our sins. We know this. Paul told the Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And what is central? I think Martin Luther argued this, that this was the center of the the Bible. Again, we can't elevate Scripture above one another, but it has been argued for a long time that if, if you wanted to find a center point of Scripture, it would be these verses in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and they come short of the glory of God. The, The original language there is lacking, the word lacking. We lack God's glory. We can't achieve God's glory. And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth. Who is the whom? It's Jesus. That's what he's referring to. God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what Paul's arguing. Yes, I know I killed Christians. I know I dragged them to their death. But I had an experience on the road to Damascus. And now I can stand here and declare to you Christ and Him crucified. The righteousness of God is demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ. God justifies us, meaning He imputes His own righteousness upon us by His grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. It is not our righteousness. We have alien righteousness. You can't do anything to go to heaven to be saved on your own. You cannot merit your salvation. It's not possible. Your works will not save you. Your works will not keep you saved. You're not saved by grace and then kept by works. The question, if I do this, will I go to hell, is just, there's, there's so many things inherently wrong with that question. And the flip side of that is Paul says, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, God forbid. The person that's living this sinful lifestyle over here, and if they're just in sin, uh, they're, they've got to go back. That, that, that There's something that's been missing there. Like they're, they have to now we, we question the justification because of the fruit that is in their lives. But you are not saved and lost every other day based on how you act or how you feel. God does not live on a turnstile door in and out of your heart, depending on your emotions. We're saved by His righteousness. That's not a Protestant version of the gospel. That is not a Methodist or Episcopalian or Baptist or Pentecostal or Presbyterian version of the gospel. That is the biblical gospel. It is the gospel according to the scriptures. So Paul can say, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have have you ever stopped to really think about that? That 
you have peace with the God of the universe. If you don't have peace anywhere else in your life, you can lay your head down on a pillow at night and say, if I've been justified by faith, I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. I, I heard a man, uh, preacher, J.T. Pugh, say in 1983, I was not there, I saw it on video. I have the sermon online, it's on video. Uh, it was a conference called Because of the Times, I think it was the first ever conference they had and they had it on video and he preached. Uh, he preached an, a message that was an hour and a half. I think to date it was one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard or seen in my life. It was, it's just one of those that you hear once in a lifetime. And he talked in the sermon about receiving a revelation of this verse uh, and just what it, what it did. Had the privilege a couple years before he died to take him back to the airport and spend a day with him. And sitting in a Red Lobster, um, I asked him about it. And he said, praise God. And he reached over and he slapped me so hard he almost knocked me out of the chair. I am not exaggerating. He hit me hard in the back, well into his 80s at the time. Uh, and he began to tell uh, how on a, a bus, some people traveled by bus back in the day, probably in the 1940s that he was on the bus, that God really helped him understand uh, justification by faith and what it meant to to be righteous in Christ and what it meant to not have condemnation and not to live in condemnation and how he had and how the churches that he, that he had pastored, um, that he kind of transferred that condemnation upon them and how when he received the, the understanding of what it really means to have justification by faith and just one of those days that you say, you know, landmark moment in, in your life to be able to sit and listen to somebody talk about that. We have peace with God. Through Him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And I close with this passage of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And thank God for that. If Peggy, if you'd come back this morning to the music, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we are eternally grateful for the salvation that You've given us. We know that we can't merit it, that the righteous requirement of the law we couldn't fulfill, but You fulfilled it for us, and we thank You for that. Now, Lord, we, we pray that we know, because Christ died for us in our place, we don't have to go to hell. We can be justified. We can live again. And we thank you for that. We thank you that through the death and resurrection of Christ, death was conquered for us. 
Your Word says that God raised Jesus from the dead so that we might have faith and hope in God. And our faith is, Lord, through Jesus Christ and His example. Christ is the first fruit, the example for all of us. You're the example of the first fruits of the resurrection because you rose from the dead first. We know the resurrection of the dead is not just a future event, but it started 2,000 years ago. The resurrection of the dead began. Lord, we know that as we have loved ones who have died in the faith, that Christ and Him crucified is very relevant to us for that reason. Because you started something 2,000 years ago that can't be stopped. The resurrection began and dead people will live again. Lord, your resurrection, your resurrected body, receiving a glorified body, and being received into the glory of God, Lord, are all examples of what's coming for us. If we remain here when you come, Lord, we will get to greet you in the clouds of glory and usher you back to rule and reign on this earth. And if we are to go, if we are to pass, Lord, we know that someday we will receive a resurrected body like as unto your glorious body. The dead in Christ will rise first. We will meet you in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we thank you for these promises today. In Jesus' name.